Well, we come now to our catechism lesson for today. And let me start my timer here. I didn't do this last week. <laughs> well, last Lord's Day, because of our pastor was out uh, with a really bad cold, cold and a sore throat, I had to beef up my lesson to help cover some things. And I basically jumped ahead of myself a little bit. And so today's lesson, there's going to be a little bit of repetition, but hey, a little bit of repetition doesn't hurt anyone. So we are continuing our systematic theology introduction, and we are still going to be looking at the doctrine of Scripture today. Today we're going to specifically look at the attribute of self-authentication. Now what do we mean by saying that the Bible is self-authenticating? First, let's consider the word authenticate. The verb authenticate means to verify, to establish the credibility of something. Or you could say to render something authentic. And by the word authentic we mean uh, having a genuine original or authority in opposition to that which is false, fictitious, or counterfeit, being what it purports to be genuine and true. Now when I hear this word, my mind immediately thinks of sports memorabilia. Decades ago, my Aunt Sherry, who lived out west, uh, she was a bigwig within the McDonald's Corporation for probably most of her life. And one day she got to meet my childhood uh, hero, Michael Jordan. And he got his autograph and then she gave it to me. It's a black and white photo of Jordan dunking with his signature down at the bottom of the photo. Now, I didn't need any real proof from Sherry that this was the real deal. I trusted my Aunt Sherry. But, you know, if I were tr to try to sell that thing to somebody, which I wouldn't do, by the way, someone may need a little bit more than just my words or my Aunt Sherry's words to convince them that this autograph is authentic. This is why if you go into a sports uh, member, uh, mem I can't say it, one of those stores, and you find them selling autographs, they almost always come with some sort of certificate of authentication. Some trusted authority or some group that we all trust in who has verified that what you're buying is the real deal. Well, we are saying today that the Bible is self-authenticating. That is, the Bible verifies itself. The Bible establishes its credibility as the Word of God. Robert Raymond points out that, quote, in the Latin version of his Institutes, Calvin states, using the Greek, that Scripture is autopiston, that is, self-authenticating. In the French version of the same work, he affirms that the Scripture, quote, carries within itself its own credentials. And we see this summarily expressed in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1, paragraph 5 reads, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Question 4 of the larger catechism asks, How does it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? And the answer, the Scriptures manifest themselves 
to be the word of God? How? By their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. Again, Calvin in book one, chapter eight of his institute spends that whole entire chapter elaborating on these evidences and presents these evidence as, and this is the title of his chapter, the credibility of scripture sufficiently proved insofar as natural reason admits. He writes, for it is wonderful how much we are confirmed in our belief when we, when we more attentively consider how admir admirably the system of divine wisdom contained in it is arranged. How perfectly free the doctrine is from everything that savors of earth. How beautifully it harmonizes in all its parts. How rich it is in all the other qualities which give an air of majesty to composition. Our hearts are still more firmly assured when we reflect that our admiration is excited more by the dignity of the matter than by the graces of style. For it was not without an admirable arrangement of providence that the sublime mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have for the greater part been delivered with a contemptible meanness of words. Had they been adored with a more splendid eloquence, the wicked might have cavilled or caviled and alleged that this constituted all their force. But now when an, when an unpolished simplicity, almost bordering on rudeness, makes a deeper impression than the loftiest flights of oratory, what does it indicate, if not that the Holy Scriptures are too mighty in the power of truth to need the rhetorician's art? Unquote. So you can see that in our Reformed faith, we have no problem speaking of evidences, quote-unquote. In that chapter, Calvin goes on to talk about uh, proofs from church history. He talks about the testimony of the church and the voice of the martyrs. Our confession, as we have already noted, generalizes eight evidences from the Bible itself, along with the persuasion that can come from the testimony of the church. And so some people may reason in light of all this, especially those who dabble a little bit in apologetics, that, well, we should be evidentialist, right? That we would make rational arguments from evidences, especially evidences outside of Scripture, as our primary method of defending the faith. That shouldn't we argue from science and archaeology and history along with those evidences within Scripture to prove to the unbeliever the authenticity of the Bible, especially since the unbeliever will challenge the idea of proving the authenticity of the Bible from the Bible itself. And yet we don't do that. Why is that? Well, in quoting those parts from the Confession, the Catechism from Calvin, I intentionally left something out that they included, which informs us of why we are not evidentialists. Even after John Calvin went on and on and on for an entire chapter pointing out the manifold evidences to the authenticity of Scripture, he closes that chapter with these words, he said, It is therefore no small proof of the authority of Scripture that it was sealed with the blood of so many witnesses, especially when it considered that in bearing testimony to the faith, they met death not with uh, fanatical enthusiasm, as erring spirits are sometimes wont to do, but with a firm and constant yet sober godly zeal. There are other reasons, neither few nor feeble, by which the dignity and majesty of the Scriptures may be not only proved to the pious, but also completely vindicated against the cavils of slanderers. These, however, cannot of themselves 
produce a firm faith in Scripture until our Heavenly Father manifests His presence in it and thereby secure implicit reverence for it. Then only, therefore, does Scripture suffice to give a saving knowledge of God when its certainty is founded on the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Still, the human testimonies which go to confirm it will not be without effect if they are used in subordination to that chief and highest proof as secondary helps to our weaknesses. But it is foolish to attempt, listen to this, it is foolish to attempt to prove to infidels that the Scripture is the Word of God. This it cannot be, cannot, uh, be known to be except by faith. Justly, therefore, does Augustine remind us that every man who would have any understanding in such high matters must previously possess piety and mental peace, end quote. So notice what Calvin says here. There are evidences within and without the Bible to not only prove the pious, to the pious the authenticity of the Bible, but also completely vindicate against the objections of slanderers. However, these proofs only serve as, quote, secondary helps. That is, they're not our primary help. They're not our primary means, our primary method. And these helps are in subordination to the chief and highest proof, which is the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Our confession reflects this same teaching. After talking about the testimony of the church and the eight evidences within Scripture, it goes on to state, Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Likewise, that question and answer, number four in the larger catechism that we read, goes on to state, But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone fully to persuade it that they are the very word of God. And so do you see what's going on here? Yes, we can talk about evidences with the unbeliever. But beloved, you have to keep this in mind. These evidences will not be effective until something else happens first. The Holy Spirit has to produce belief in our minds. And only then will these evidences serve as helps to assure us. This is why we are not evidentialists. This is why we do not sit the unbeliever down to argue with him or put our Bibles to the side and then try to rationalize him or argue him into the kingdom and into faith through evidences and reason alone. It is foolish, says Calvin, to attempt to prove to infidels that the scripture is the word of God. And notice specifically who he targeted here. Infidels, that is, unbelievers. Why? Because such can only be known by faith, and faith is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not produced by man, or evidences, or science, or archaeology, or anything else. 1 John 2, 18-27 states, Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are all, that they all are not of us. 
but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who was the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now you know there are those out there who will twist verse 27 to say, ah, see, we don't need Bible teachers, we don't need pastors, we don't need churches. I mean, it says it right there, right? We have no, no one need or no need for anyone to teach us, right? Isn't that what John plainly stated here? But that isn't John's point, beloved. John is addressing a deeper issue here. What John is telling us here is that our faith does not depend on any man. It is not produced by any man, but is produced by the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word. So think about it. If John was saying that we don't need teachers, this would be self-contradictory, because after all, he's writing them, he's teaching them. But of course, that is not his point. The point is that he is identifying the source of our belief, of our faith, as opposed to those antichrists who embrace lies and deny Jesus as the Christ and therefore deny the Father. Beloved, we cannot produce faith. We cannot produce it for ourselves, much less produce it for anybody else. Only God can do that work in a person's heart. Well, let's address two aspects of this. First, there is the logical aspect, and then secondly, there is the sin factor. First, let's look at the logical factor, and here's what I mean by that. In saying that the Bible is self-authenticating, are we somehow being irrational? Some would say that Christianity is repudiated on the ground that it is circular reasoning, but is this a valid refutation? And I would say simply no, not at all. In logic, when we are dealing with the nature of proofs, that is, conclusions reached from premises by the rules of inference, if we are going to create an argument by which the authenticity of the Bible is the conclusion that we embrace, inferred from such and such premises, keep in mind essentially what we are saying. We're saying that we will accept verification of the Bible based on whatever premises we are willing to accept. We are saying that we will accept the Bible's authenticity based on whatever or whoever we have established in our premises to be the authority and will accept as authoritative. Well, here's the million-dollar question. What or who else is better qualified to establish the authenticity of the Bible as the Word of God than the author, God himself? Now, if that kind of flew over your head a little bit and a little bit too wordy, let me break it down as simple as I can. Let's go back to the Michael Jordan autograph. Suppose you wanted to buy that autograph from me, 
but you question its authenticity. You want proof. You want verification. Well, suppose then that I got Michael Jordan himself to come over to our house to meet with me and to meet with you to verify that he did indeed sign that autograph. So he sits down with us and says, yeah, I signed it. Would you accept it then? Of course you would. Who better to verify an autograph of Michael Jordan than Michael Jordan himself? But then imagine if someone said, well, Jordan, I appreciate you coming over and taking the time to personally tell me this, but I still don't believe you signed it. And so if you don't mind, let's run down the road to the local sports memorabilia store, I got it that time, and talk to Johnny to see if he can attest to all this, to see if he can verify it. Well, folks, at that point, it's hopeless, isn't it? I mean, if the very guy who signed the photo cannot convince you that he signed it, who would and who could? Nobody. You'll never be satisfied. And why would you take some random dealer's word who probably has never even met Jordan or wasn't there when he signed the photo over Jordan's own word? It doesn't make any sense. And so think about what you're really saying at that point. You're saying, Jordan, I think you're lying. I don't trust you. Beloved, if indeed the Bible is the word of God, then who else better is qualified to verify the authenticity of that word than the author himself? Who else could verify it? Whose testimony would you accept over and beyond God's own testimony? Whose authority in the matter is greater than God's own authority? Listen to Hebrews chapter 6. It says, and we desire each one of you to show the earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs a promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, or we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so do you see the argument here in Hebrews? The foundation, the premise, if you will, of God's promises rests on God himself, on his very nature. There is no one greater than him upon which to rest the, uh, the promises of God. Robert Raymond writes, this article, that is the article from the Confession, asserts both the Bible's self-authenticating, self-evidencing, self-attesting, and self-validating character as the Word of God 
and yet also the necessity of the Holy Spirit's saving work if one is to believe it savingly. It recognizes that the Word of God would of necessity have to be self-authenticating, self-attesting, and self-validating. For if it needed anyone or anything else to authenticate and believe its divine character based on the principle that the validating source is always the higher and final authority, and then he quotes the passage we just read, Hebrews 6.13, it would not be the Word of God. Let me read that again. If the Bible needed anyone or anything else to authenticate it and validate its divine character based on the principle that the validating source is always the higher and final authority, it would not be the Word of God. Folks, the Bible is the Word of God whether you believe it or not. It evidences itself to be so and God Himself validates it. But if you don't believe that, do not think for a second that the problem is with the Word or with God. The problem is with you. At that point, you're like the guy questioning Michael Jordan's uh, verification of his own autograph. You're just simply throwing shade on the character of God. And your problem is unbelief, not a lack of evidence. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to him, that is, the scribes and Pharisees, in verse 3, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father, for if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Again, notice what Jesus says here very carefully. Jesus testified of being the light of the world. And then the scribes and Pharisees, by a misapplication of the law regarding witnesses, argued with Jesus that he could not testify of himself. And then now Jesus, in response, does not concede that he is testifying by himself, but he goes on to say that even if he did, his testimony would still be valid. Why? He says, quote, For I know where I came from and where I am going. In most commentaries that I've read on this, this is just another way of saying that Jesus was in a category, and by extension, his word, all of his own. You know, like what John Calvin says here, he says, Christ replies that his testimony possesses sufficient credit and authority because he's not a private person belonging to the great body of men, but holds a very different station. For when he says that he knoweth whence he came, and whither he goeth, he thus excludes himself from the ordinary rank of men. The meaning, therefore, is that every man is heard with suspicion in his own cause, and it is provided by the laws that no man shall be believed when he speaks for his own advantage. But this does not apply to the Son of God, who holds a rank above the whole world, for he is not reckoned as belonging to the rank of men, has received from his father this privilege to reduce all men to obedience to him 
by a single word, end quote. And I absolutely love that from Calvin. In other words, Christ, who is truth, does not depend upon the testimony of man to validate his word. His word is true because he says it's true. God is not on the dock awaiting the validation of men. But see, that's just it, folks. If you have a problem with that, then your problem isn't a lack of validation or evidences. Your problem is unbelief. You have a problem with the Word of God because you have a problem with God Himself. Jesus would go on in chapter 8 to tell these same people, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. And why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Could Jesus be any clearer and plainer here? Well, this then finally and briefly leads me to the factor of sin. And for this, I want to end with a quote from Gordon Clark in his book, God's Hammer. Uh, he does such a great job summarizing this that I just want to quote him and end it there. He writes regarding the factor of sin. He says, when Adam fell, the human race became not stupid so that the truth was hard to understand, but inimical to the acceptance of the truth. Men did not like to retain God in their knowledge and change the truth of God into a lie, for the carnal mind is at enmity against God. Hence the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, for the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned, and in order to accept the gospel, therefore, it is necessary to be born again. The abnormal, depraved intellect must be remade by the Holy Spirit. The enemy must be made a friend. This is the work of regeneration. And the heart of stone can be taken away and a heart of flesh be given only by God himself. Resurrecting the man who is dead in sin and giving him a new life, far from being a human achievement, requires nothing less than almighty power. It is therefore impossible by argument or preaching alone to cause anyone to believe the Bible. Only God can cause such belief. At the same time, this does not mean that argument is useless. Peter tells us to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3.15. This was the constant practice of the apostles. Stephen disputed with the Libertines. The Jew, uh, Jerusalem Council disputed. In Ephesus, Paul disputed three whole months in the synagogue and then continued disputing in the school of Tyran uh, Tyrannus. Anyone, says Clark, who was willing to argue, dispute, or excuse me, anyone who was unwilling to argue, dispute, and reason is disloyal to his Christian duty. But at this point, the natural question is, well, what is the use of all this expounding and explaining if it does not produce belief? And the answer should be clearly understood. The witness or testimony of the Holy Spirit is a witness to something. The Spirit witnesses to the authority of Scripture. 
if no apostle or preacher expounded the message, there would be nothing in the sinner's mind for the Spirit to witness to. The Spirit cannot produce belief in Christ unless the sinner has heard of Christ. Romans 10, Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. No doubt God in his omnipotence could reveal the necessary information to each man individually without a written Bible or ministerial preaching, but this is not what God has done. God gave the apostles and preachers the duty of expounding the message, but the production of belief is the work of the Spirit, for faith is the gift of God. End of quote. Yeah, I just think that's an excellent summary there by Clark. Yes, we can argue. We do reason with people, as he, as he noted, as the apostles themselves did. They reasoned from the scriptures, and it was that word being implanted in people's minds that the Holy Spirit bore witness to in their hearts at his appointed time and to those to whom he has chosen. So there we have it on the authenticity of the scripture. We see that the Bible is self-authenticating because it is the very word of God. And again, I want you to really think clearly. Again, keep in mind how all these attributes are tied in with one another. If you doubt the authenticity of Scripture, you're throwing shade on God himself. You're doubting inspiration. You're doubting all those other things that we've talked about previously. It's all a package deal. Well, my time is up, I see. So I'm going to end it there before I go over. <laughs> and we will continue next Lord's Day with our study of the attributes of Scripture.